Ephesians 2.8, we read it a moment ago, and it's this great passage, quite simply, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It tells us how we're saved, by grace, through the vehicle of faith. Now, even as we look at that, you say, okay, what's it saying? Well, grace, what is that? And, and through faith, and if we're saved through faith, then we even there have to ask a seemingly simple question, so then what is faith? You know, we use the word all the time, but if somebody asks you to define what faith is, could you define it? Could you explain it? And even in that, let me ask maybe another related question that kind of shows some of the issue. What is the relationship between belief and faith? The words that we use oftentimes interchangeably, and, and clearly they're closely related, but are they the same thing? Or maybe instead, are they closely related, but also very different in significant ways? Um, the more I've reflected on the question, the more that I realize that they are very close, but they are also different ideas. Um, you know, when we think about what belief is, we're often talking about intellectual assent. We're talking about what we think, what we do with our mind. And yet when the Bible talks about saving faith, it's something that includes our thinking, it includes our belief, but at the same time, it also goes beyond it. You see, faith not only involves our mind or what we think, but it also involves our heart. It involves our commitment, it involves our will, it involves the whole person. So it's not only a statement about what we think, it's a statement about what we've committed ourselves to, literally who we've become. Let me even give you a practical example of, some of, the, of how this might play out in everyday life. So let's say I know of a number of people, some of you might as well, that, that are just terrified of the idea of flying. Now, I could explain to them something about the science of how a plane works and, you know, how the, you know, the aerodynamics and the, all the dynamics of the plane. I could then give them the stats about how, you know, flying is actually the safest way to travel. You know, you're more likely to get a, a wreck driving to the airport than you are flying the plane. I could explain all of that. And that person might look at that and say, I understand. I believe it. I, I, intellectually, I agree, but yet still when it comes down to actually getting on the plane, they're hesitant to do that. They're fearful to do it. Why? Because what they believe in their head hasn't translated into who they are, what they actually, what, what they believe in their heart. And therefore, it's not translating into the way they're choosing to act. So what's happening? There's a sense that they do not have faith in the things that they may believe to be true. It's here, but it's not here. So there is a difference between our belief and faith. They're closely related, but there is a difference. What we think in our mind and what we go beyond the mind and what we embrace in our heart and our will. Let me give you even another very simple practical example. It's like I could take a chair. We have this chair here, and I can say, okay, I can understand it and believe that it's, you know, that it's built, but what's the difference between believing and faith? Well, if I have faith, I'm going to just put my whole weight on it. I'm going to sit on it. See, faith is not only belief, it's acting. It's trusting. It's, in a sense, putting my weight, my health, on what I believe to be true. That's what faith is. Now, even as we go there, let me, in a sense, stop a minute and kind of almost step back and maybe address another issue related to this on, on, there's, on which there's a lot of confusion in our culture today. Even when we talk about faith, we have to realize that faith isn't something that, uh, you know, that, that makes things true. In a sense, something is not made true by the sincerity of our faith. 
especially when it comes to spiritual issues. I'll talk to people all the time, and they'll say something along the lines of, well, that's what you believe. Well, this is what I believe. That's your truth. This is my truth. Because I believe it, then this makes it true for me. This idea that I can have my truth and you can have your truth and somehow our faith makes it true. Well, that's total nonsense. You know, that, we say it all the time, but it's not at all true. You know, the, the, the way that we need to remember it, the, the factual idea is this. The most important thing isn't the sincerity of our faith, but it's in the truthfulness of what we put our faith in. Uh, again, let me give you another example of that. Okay, so we had this chair here a moment ago. Well, I built another chair here as well. This is kind of hand-built for me. Or, you know, here I've got this chair. It's built by cardboard blocks, and it's got this plastic uh, cover for a storage bin. Now, what if I said that I really sincerely believe this chair is going to hold my weight? If I was totally sincere, really believed it, now is the sincerity of my belief going to make this chair reliable? Well, let's try it out. Let's see, I'm really sincere. Let's try to... You know, I would have done that 10 years ago when I had confidence. <laughs> 10 years ago, I know I could get back up after I fell. Now I just want to finish the sermon, so let's let you... you but you know the idea, right? You know, you, you know the, the concept here. It's obvious. The fact is, I could be very sincere, really believe, but all the sincerity in the world, all the belief and faith in the world isn't going to make this strong enough to hold up my weight. And the fact is, if I believe in something that is not true, then the fact is my sincere faith is sincerely wrong. Because the principle then again is it isn't the sincerity of our faith, but the truthfulness of what we believe in, of what we put our faith in, that's the matter. That's why Jesus said, all you need is the faith of a mustard seed. We just need a tiny bit of faith in something that is true and that is real. And so the important thing is we're looking at this is God calls us to faith Faith in something that is true, something that is real. Now, this is all introduction, you know, with this question, what is faith? And, but it's going to lead into this whole personal question. We make it personal and practical when it talks about how do, we, how do we apply this to ourselves. Let me ask this question. Is it possible to believe in Jesus but not have saving faith in him? If there's a difference between belief and faith, is it possible that I could have the right beliefs about Jesus, but I fail to translate those beliefs into, beyond my mind into my heart so they don't change my actions, so I believe, but I don't have saving faith? If we're saved by grace through faith, can I have something short of true faith? Think about that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But let's go back to Ephesians 2.8. What does it say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's teaching us that what we're talking about here is a gift. It is a gift of God. It's not by our own doing. It's not by our efforts. It's not something that is a result of works. It's not what we earn. It's a gift. And so if we understand this gift, what, does the, what is it teaching us here about the nature of this gift? First of all, it's teaching us that it's a gift that's not just a help to us, because what we need isn't help, but we need salvation. You know, last week we looked at the first part of Ephesians 2. And we saw in the first three verses that Paul describes who we were apart from Christ, apart from God's intervention, who all of us are by nature. Look what he says. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, amongst whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of the mankind. Now, that's harsh. We were dead. It wasn't that we were sick who needed healing. It wasn't that we were lost needing direction. It wasn't that we were weak who needed help. We were dead. And verse 3 says what? We were chilled by nature, children of wrath, that we deserve God's punishment. That's who we were apart from Christ. We were without hope, save a miracle from God. Now, that idea is now carried forward here in verse 8, because what does it say? For by grace you have been helped. Well, no. For by grace you have been directed. No, that's not what it says. For by grace you have been healed. No, no. By grace we have been saved. What does that imply? That we needed saving. That we didn't need help. We needed saving. We needed this radical intervention of God. And apart from that radical intervention, apart from a miracle, we had no hope. And it was a miracle that we in no way deserved. Because it was ours not through what we did, but through grace. Not through, in a sense, religion, but grace. Why? Because following Jesus isn't a matter of religion. Now, now here's what I mean by that. Some people might be saying, wait, this is in church. Aren't we talking about religion here? Well, when you think about religion, all the world's religions, again, apart from Christianity, kind of have the same message. They all teach that there is a God or there are gods and they were somehow separated from God. And, and therefore, the teaching of religion is these are the things that we have to do to get right with God. And now here's where the religions have different hoops. So you have to take a pilgrimage to Mecca, or you have to pray seven times a day, or you have to keep certain rules. We have to give certain amount of money to the church, or you have to say certain prayers. You have certain rituals. We all have different hoops. Now, different religions have different hoops, but the whole idea is that there are hoops. There are things that we do. And the idea that if we do these things, if we keep the right rules, then religion teaches, then as a result, we will earn God's favor. We will earn his reward. But now here we look at what Paul's teaching and it's saying the message of Christianity is totally different. Because it's not about here's what you have to do. The message of Christianity is, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's not the result of any rules that you've keep. It is a gift of God. It's not the result of works so that none of us can boast. By grace we are saved. Grace means, by very definition, unmerited favor. It's something that God gives us that we don't deserve in any way. Again, all the religions are teaching what? Here's how you earn God's favor. Here's how you merit. Here's how you do the works. But Christianity is in many ways kind of the anti-religion. It's saying, no, it's not about religion. It's not about doing. It's about accepting God's gift of grace. You know, oftentimes I'll talk to people about spiritual things and the conversation will get into this idea of, you know, you know, you know, do you think you're going to heaven? If you were to stand before God and, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? And, and usually most people would say, yeah, I think I'm going. And, and, and their answer of the why is usually they say something like, I think I've been a pretty good person. And in their mind, I think they often have this idea that there's these divine scales of justice. And God will, on the one hand, you know, put our good deeds and the things that we tried to do. And on the other hand, he'll put our bad things. And, and we hope that there's a little bit of curve. But, but most of us feel that this divine justice, that our good is going to outweigh our bad. And, uh, and so we think we're going to pass the test. But what does Paul teach here in Ephesians? That we're saved by grace through faith, not of our own doing, not of our works. And now we have to say, okay, why don't works measure up? 
If we can't be saved by works, why not? Well, here's the question. If we think we can be saved by being good, then good by whose standard? How good do we have to be? See, when we think about the idea of, of who defines good, the obvious answer when you think about it when we're talking about salvation is the only one who can define good is God. So in other words, if we are going to get into heaven by our good works, if we have more good on the scale than the bad, then ultimately the good that we have to put there is things that are good compared to God. God needs to sit back and say, I'm impressed. You know, and what is good compared to God? Well, that means to be as good as God is, to be without sin, to be 100% holy and righteous. Now, we know, may know of people that we consider to be good by our standards. Man, they're a good person. But they're good by our standards compared to the people around us. Do you know anybody that you would say, man, God's going to look at them and be impressed? They're good compared to God. Do you know anybody like that? you know anybody close? You know, even in this, let me try to illustrate in a story from some years ago. Back uh, years ago, I was a pastor in Florida, and I spent a weekend in prison. Well, let me step back. Well, let me rephrase that. Uh, um, you know, I was part of a ministry where we did a weekend in prison where I got to go home at nights, and because we're serving there, and uh, the prison we were working with was Martin Correctional Institution. It's a maximum security prison in Martin County, Florida. Uh, it's rated the third worst prison in the state. So in other words, it was not a place for first-time offenders or white-collar crime. To get there, you had to be multiple violent offender with a very long sentence. And um, now, a couple days into our work with these men, I had a one-in-one -one discussion with one of the men there. And, and I remember asking him some of these questions. You know, if you were to stand before God and God would ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? And he said, well, I think that I would get in. And I said, well, why? And he said, well, I, I think I've been pretty good. You know, I've tried hard to be good, and, and um, I've been good enough. And my initial mental response was, what? Are you kidding? You, do, you look where, you, do you know where you're at? You know, you're in a maximum security prison. Um, your actions have landed you here. I mean, when you look at general society, society says, you don't, you're not good enough to live out in general society. You're not, you're not good enough to live in a minimum security. You're in a maximum security prison because that's what your actions have deserved. Now, why do you think that God's standards are going to be that much lower that you don't deserve to be in general society, but, you know, but God thinks you're good compared to him? Now, the fact is, he was a lot bigger than me and was in prison for violent crimes, so I didn't say it that way to him. Um, didn't think it was very wise. Um, but I did try to communicate that idea, saying, how do you think you're good? Now, now, you know why he thought that he was good? Because he was comparing himself to all the other inmates, and he's looking and saying, well, the guys that are here, that guy's in for murder. That guy's in for dismemberment of multiple murder. That guy's running a drug ring here. Hey, compared to these other inmates, I'm pretty good. Now, the thing we've got to realize, that's what we all do. We all look at that, and, and we don't compare ourselves to God. We compare ourselves to the other inmates, the people around us. And there's always people around us that are worse than us. So I can say, well, that coworker, man, he's a nasty person. That guy, man, he's really dishonest. That my neighbor, man, he, he left his, spouse, his, his wife and, you know, having affairs. And then, man, that guy's a drunk over there. And compared to all them, I look pretty good. And all we're doing is we're comparing ourselves to the other inmates. And the problem is, is that when God says that we are judged by our goodness, if that's what we want to be judged by, it's not by the people around us. It's God setting the standard. Are we good compared to him? 
And there, none of us come close. And that's why it says it's not based on our worst works, it's based, we're saved by grace through faith, God's unmerited favor, recognizing we didn't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve God's grace. But God came in the person of Jesus and he took our sins upon the cross and he took the penalty of our sins. He died for us so that if we have faith and trust in him, ask him to forgive us, he gives us forgiveness. He gives us righteousness. This isn't religion. It's against the concepts of religion because it's not about us working our way towards God, but it's about a God who looked at us when we were dead and helpless and couldn't work our way towards him and said, okay, I'm going to come down and I'm going to save you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to carry you across this chasm that you could never cross. And God gives us this gift of grace, but we receive it through faith. You see, and when, again, when we talked about that, what is that faith? It's, it's, it's a faith. It's not just our belief. It's not just our mind, but it's faith. By grace, we have been saved. We take that through faith. Now, again, what is faith? We started off the message asking that. Again, some people will say it's intellectual assent. And if I, many people will say, if I believe the right things, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, I believe he died on the cross, I've said the words, maybe I said a prayer somewhere along the way, therefore I'm saved. What we need to realize is that that definition of faith of being little more than belief is, is very modern and it's not at all biblical. Nowhere in the Bible will you see faith described that way. When the Bible, it's always something that goes beyond intellectual assent, and it goes to commitment of our life. In fact, there are places where it says the, you know, where it's very clear, that's not what faith is. One, one good example of that is in James. In James chapter 2, James is trying to talk about what faith is. And he says, it's not faith plus works equal salvation, but what you need to realize is that true faith by its very nature will always result in change life because we commit ourselves to that truth. We will be changed. And then to make his point, he tries to make it clear that just right beliefs aren't enough. Look what he says, verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You know, if you think it's just about intellectual belief that God is one, that Jesus died on the cross, you know what? Satan and his demons, they would make great Christians because they have great theology. They know all those things. In fact, they not only know it, but they react, they shudder out of fear because it's that true to them. But you know what? Obviously, they've rejected God. They know in their mind, but they've not received in their heart. It doesn't shape them. See, biblical faith does involve a sense of right beliefs. You can't have faith in something that you know is false. So it is, it is that, but it's always more than that. It's not only what we think, but it's committing ourselves to that truth. It's not only knowing that I'm a sinner, that I need forgiveness, but asking God to forgive, giving him the right to become Lord of my life, giving him the right to be able to have, you know, to, to be God, meaning that he gets the right to call ultimate authority over every area of, of who I am. So now the question then is, okay, how about you? If, is if we can, we asked earlier, can you have belief and not saving faith? Okay, what do you have? Do you believe in Jesus? More than that, do you, do you have faith in him? What is the nature of your relationship with God? How far have you gone in that? Well, as we try to understand that, it kind of is going to lead to this next question, which Ephesians gets into. Well, if that's the nature of faith, then where does this faith even come from? What is the source of this gift? Let's go back to Ephesians 2.8. Um, and I know, want you to notice something important here. I think many of us, if you were to ask, you know, well, what does it teach? Well, we're saved by faith. 
That's actually not what it says. Let me put the verse up here. I want you to show, what it, show you what it says. Look at the words. Look at the prepositions. What does it say? For by grace you have been saved through faith. What are we saved by? We're saved by grace, which we tap into through faith. And that's really important. Grace is the gift of God. The way we receive this grace is through faith. Let me try to, again, try to illustrate this in a very practical way. How many, any of you ever been water skiing? Okay, if you've never been, you still kind of get the idea. You know what that's like. And so you've got, you know, you've got the skis on, you've got the boat, you've got the rope, and, and you're holding on to the rope and, the, and you get pulled up, and, and that pulls you through so that you're skiing through the water. Now, let me ask you, is the rope pulling you? No. No, the boat is pulling you. The power is in the boat. The power, you are skiing, in a sense, by the boat, but the rope is how you're accessing that power. You're skiing by the boat through the rope. That's the idea here with grace. We are saved by grace, accessed through faith. That's the rope. That's what connects us with God's grace. Now, that, keep that in mind because it's going to connect us with this next idea, which is if we're saved by grace through faith, then what we're going to see is that even the faith itself that we're saved by is a gift of God. It's not that I'm smart enough. It's not that I was good enough to have faith, that I did something that other people didn't do. Even the very faith that I have is by God's grace. It's a gift. Look at it again in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. Is it a gift of God? Now, in that, as you look at that, the key question is, what is the gift of God? This is the gift of God. Well, what is the this that it's referring to? According to the basic rules of language, and it's here the same for English as it is for Greek, what you have is a pronoun, this. And the pronoun draws its identity from the immediately preceding noun. So let's look at it again. The immediate preceding noun is faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, this faith is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. And so even the faith that we have is from God. Now you might say, okay, what difference does that make? Well, one really significant thing is understanding our role, uh, the role that faith has, is that it's not something that we do. It's something that we only express our need. And, and that we come to Christ because of what he gives us. But it's not only that, but then we grow in that because of what he gives us. See, if we see faith as something that we do in our salvation, likewise, we will see it as something that we do in our Christian growth. And that's where we often get tra tra trapped up or messed up. See, if we see here, it's, it's not of ourselves; it's a gift of God. Then we'll recognize that the process of having faith isn't trying harder. It isn't somehow, I've got to pull myself up, I've got to somehow generate faith that I don't have. But faith comes by acknowledging our weakness and dependency, and God, I need you to give me what I don't have. Let me give you a, a clear, tragic example of how this can play out. True story. Uh, somebody that I knew that uh, had developed terminal cancer. And, uh, and, and he just we prayed, and he just then got involved and started going to some churches that really stressed faith and healing and, and the idea of, okay, we're going to pray for you, and you're going to get healing. And, and, and when he wasn't healed, yet people in the church started telling him, well, the reason you aren't healed is, is you don't have enough faith. If you had enough faith, then you would be healed. And so he started to think, okay, well, the, my problem is a lack of faith, so what I need to do is that I need to generate faith. 
I need to somehow accomplish it because it's my faith that accomplishes God's blessing. So he tried to generate faith. He tried to do everything he could. Ultimately, he said, I'm going to try to, the ultimate demonstration of faith, I'm going to take the net out. I have a life insurance policy. I'm going to give up my life insurance policy so that it proves to God how much faith I have so that if I die, there's no safety net. Well, then he died. And his family was left, you know, just really destitute because suddenly there was no protection there. There was no provision. Now, I want you to see what the problem was, is that he thought that it was his faith. You know, it's, I'm going to do the work of faith, and if I do the work of faith, somehow I need to generate it in myself, and if I do that, then God's going to reward me. But what we need to realize is that even faith is a gift of God, and if we understand that, we realize that when we seek faith, our response in this should be dependence and humility. It's not, okay, I need to find it, I need to do it myself, I can perform it. But when God calls us to have faith, it's not calling us to try harder to believe as something we could do on our own. But our greatest need is to acknowledge our need. God, I don't have faith. God, I'm struggling. I'm doubting. I don't know what to do. I love Mark chapter 9. A man brought his son to Jesus and asked Jesus to heal him. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you know, anything is possible for him who believes. And I love the response. Mark 9, 24, the man responds back. You know, he says, the father cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. I love that. Because that's where sometimes we're at. God, I believe, but help my unbelief. I know I need to have faith, but I don't have enough faith. God, I'm, all I'm doing is I'm bringing my little bit and I'm bringing my need. I need you to give me what I do not have. And God gives, not based on our performance, but based on his gift of grace. Now, even in this, what does it do? If I understand this, it means that not only... Since I'm saved by grace, not by works, then we can't boast. It not only changes the way that I approach God, but it also gives us, it should give us a humility around other people. You know, if I interact with people, with unbelievers or people that are struggling in some way, you know, sometimes you get churches where it's almost, well, I'm, you know, we're better than they are. And you can, we can have that idea. Listen, if I understand that I'm saved by grace through faith, and even this faith is a gift of God, then I realize there's no one I can look down on. Because there isn't anything that I've done, if, if I have a current walk with God and God is, is changing me, there's nothing that it's, it's not the result of me, it's the result of me bringing my weakness before God and God giving me everything. And I can look at people that are is lost and, 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 you know, and, and instead of looking down, I'm put by the grace of God, there go I. What does that do? It reminds me, God, I need your grace. I need your, because that's who I am apart from myself, apart from you, by myself. And so with great humility, I seek it out. But at the same time, it gives me great confidence to reach out to people who are lost. Why? Because if by God's grace, God could come to them and say, okay, I'm going to take the debt and I'm going to make them alive. I'm going to make the person that's, that's rejecting me and I'm going to change their heart. So we have great hope. That's why we pray with confidence. See, not only do we pray there, but we realize, okay, well, that's the nature and that's the source. And, but if God, if I understand this, what's the scope what, what impact does it have on how God really changes me? See, because what we realize as we look at what he's teaching here is it's not just that we have this grace and it saves us and now we're going to heaven, we're saved from our sins. And, but we're not only saved from what we've done, we're saved from sin to a different life. We're saved from our dead and we're made alive, that we, we are saved for a purpose. He's saying that, no, God sees us now in our righteousness with Christ. We are not the pulpers but we are now children of the king. We are made holy, that we are set apart 
to be used of God for good works, for a future. Look what he says, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word workmanship there is, is the Greek word poema, which from, you can guess, that's where we get the word poem. It is a work of art. It could be translated, we are his work of art. We are his masterpiece. So God is teaching us that we are the masterpiece, the work of art. God has created us, and I love how he says it twice. We are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. Twice it's not about who we are, but God has made us, God has made us. Why? Because it's all about God. And when God has made us, he doesn't make us just as this project. We're not his project that he's kind of working on. We're his masterpiece. And, and we say, well, how, how can we, that be true? Well, we, to understand this, again, it's continuation. Why does he do it? Because we're saved by grace through faith. It's not who we are. God doesn't use us because of our accomplishment, our goodness, our performance. It's not because of anything we do, we've done, anything we deserve to be, but by grace through faith. Not by works, none of us can boast. Now, even in this, there's two things that we can struggle. One, on the one hand, we think, okay, well, I can, I can do it on my own. We can self-reliant. And, and, you know, and so often in coming to Christ, the people struggle because we really can't admit that we cannot do it. We cannot make ourselves wholly reliant on Christ. But you know where I think we often struggle with pride after we've come to know Christ? The different kind of pride is that we then insist that now that God has saved us, we're too weak and too flawed and too stained by our past to ever be anything beautiful, to ever really be true, truly used of God. And you say, well, that's not pride. That's humility. That's all over you of yourself. No, it's actually pride. Because what we're doing is we're saying, God, I know that you're the artist, but my canvas is so screwed up. The canvas of my life is so messed up that you could never make us a masterpiece. You can never do that. You know, I, you can never use me in any significant way. What we're doing is we're saying, God, you know, your grace and your power aren't ultimate. Now, we may believe that in our mind, but we don't have faith in it. And our lack of faith is evident by the way we act. Because what we're saying, my faith is, I have faith in my weakness. I have faith in my failure. I have faith in my scars because I think they're better than your power to redeem them. In my case, my sins went over the cross. That's dominant. You know, when we look at our scars and our past failures, they define us. And Jesus says, no, no, you don't understand. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't by what you do, it's what I've done. And not only that, you are the workmanship to do good works which I prepared in advance. But you say, no, you don't understand my past. And Jesus says, well, now go back. Remember Ephesians 1.11. What did that say? It says, in him we have attained an inheritance, having been predestined according to him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Everything in our past. He is so powerful that he takes our past. He takes our scars. He takes the way that people have sinned against us. He takes our failures. He takes our deepest wounds. And he says, you're not only the project that I can make something good out of it. No, you're my masterpiece, and I'm going to take what those seem to be these dark splotches that you think could never be redeemed, and I'm going to make it a masterpiece, so that's a unique part of my beauty. You see, I've been preparing for you for good works, and part of that is redeeming the things that you think disqualify you. That's what I want to use in you. That's how I want to work. My friends, when we question that, when we question, am I truly loved? And, and what we're doing is we're questioning not our value, but God and his love. 
When we question, could God use us? We're questioning not our ability, but God's ability. Could he use anybody? Who's the guy writing this? It's the Apostle Paul. What's his story? I mean, he was out killing Christians, opposing the church, totally opposed to Christ. And if God could use somebody like that and say, listen, God could redeem me, and God's taking my scars, my failure, all those things, and redeeming me, and that's part of who I am as a masterpiece. My friends, likewise, when we look at that, we doubt whether we could be as masterpiece. We're, we're not criticizing ourselves. We're criticizing the artist. We're criticizing his goodness. He's created this work of art. And he said, you are my masterpiece. You are beautiful. You are loved. You are created for good's work. And we say, no, God, you don't understand. You know, here, let me instruct you what's beautiful because I'm not. I know that you think this is really a good work, but let me explain to you that you just you kind of screwed up with me. I know better than you. Friends, do you understand where this struggle is rooted in pride? That we really, we might believe, but we really don't have faith in his goodness? And God's telling you, no, no, you don't understand. You are my child. You are a saint. You are my great masterpiece. You are the one that I've taken great pride. I've prepared for you good works in beforehand. And all those things that you think disqualify you, let him come to my grace and let me redeem them because that's the exact things that I'm going to use you. My strength is greater than all your weakness. And now I've not only saved you from all those things, but I saved you for good works yeah, we aren't saved by good works, but when we're saved, the true nature means that we are saved for good works. Again, verse 10, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What is it saying? That it's, salvation is God's doing. Yes, but then once God has done it, he doesn't want us to remain passive. He says, okay, now that God has worked, now live that out. It's not that work, good works are accomplishing salvation, but when we have true faith, it should change us so much from the inside out that as we live those, that, that truth out, that we're changed, that we're different, that we live differently, that we live out the good works that he has, a, has prepared beforehand, not based on our ability, not based on anything that we've done, but based on his power. But you know, the struggle with this is that it's ultimately, we think our humility, our low view, but it's really our pride. So often we struggle at first coming to Christ because we don't, we can't humble ourselves to admit that we cannot do it on our own. We need to completely rely on Christ. And then when we come to Christ, that pride turns around and we look at our low view of ourselves, and we have this demeaning low view, but it's ultimately a low view that is about pride. That we look at that and we say, well, first, okay, I came to Christ, it's not on my own merit, but then God, for you to use me, it has to be my merit. It has to be my performance. It has to be my ability. And God, you know, the fact is, is that my weaknesses are greater than your strength. My friends, do you understand what the challenge is here? It's, we may have the right theology, but if you're a follower of Christ, God wants you to say, get beyond the right thoughts. Believe it. Have faith. Live like it's true. And if you're struggling to live like it's true, then say, God, give me the faith. Give me the ability to believe. I agree with you. I'm struggling. I agree with you. I'm wrong. I need faith. So the challenge that I want to just end with is just this challenge of saying, how do we move from belief to faith? It's possible to have belief and not have faith. How do we move there? And again, for some, it may be there that you, know, you have that walk with Christ and, and it's God is believing what God says about you. 
Not only believing in your mind, but having faith, living as it's true, asking God to give that to you. For some, though, it might be that first step. It might be, okay, I know these things are true about God, but do you have a true relationship? Do you have true faith in him? What's that look like? Through the years, there have been, have, uh, there have been like all kinds of daredevils that have tried to do fancy tricks at Niagara Falls. However, the guy that kind of will forever be known as the first uh, to get the public's interest is a guy named the Great Blondin. Um, if you go up to Niagara Falls, there's all kinds of stuff up there about, he was this famous tightrope walker. And, and uh, in the late 1850s, they declared his intent to do what many thought was impossible. He was going to cross the Niagara Falls on a tightrope. People thought it could not be done with all the water and that. And so finally, on June 30th, 1959, he ran a 1,300-foot rope across the falls. And at 5 p.m., he walked out on that rope with a 30-foot beam, and he crossed the Niagara Falls. First time it was ever done. And uh, thousands of people came, paid 25 cents to see this great feat. And they came to their side. He you know, cheered, wild cheering. But he wasn't done. He was forever a showman. So he told the crowd to come back in a couple days, and he was going to do something else. And for you know, the course of months, he would every couple days do a different stunt, each one seeming more, more dangerous. You know, he would cross blindfolded. Um, you know, he uh, had a bike that he rode across. Um, he crossed on stilts one time. Uh, he even had a little stove he carried on his back. He went to the middle of the rope and he cooked an egg and ate an omelet uh, while on, on this, on this uh, you know, tightrope. However, what he's probably most most remembered for is what happened on August 14, 1959. Most people agree it's the most dangerous thing that was, has ever been done. Uh, he had just, be, a couple days before, had done a daring crossing, and, and the people, you know, were there, thousands of people. He came over, and they're shouting, Blondin, Blondin, you know, and they're cheering for him, and he held up his hands to address the crowd. And he said, in two days, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to do my most daring feat ever, he says, in two days, it's my intent to carry a man across on my back. How many of you believe I can do that? And they all shouted back, you know, we believe you can do it. We believe. He cried to the clown down. He says, now I need is a volunteer. <laughs> and it went really silent really quick. Because what happened is you had a lot of people who believed in their mind, but they didn't really believe, have faith in the heart. Because faith is not just believing, it's actually getting on the guy's back and entrusting her life to him. Now, actually, he couldn't find anybody. He went to his, his, um, his manager, a guy named Harry uh, Colcord, and he talked him into volunteering and said, you know, this was your idea. You know, if you really believe it, you got to volunteer. Then on August 14th, he carried him across on his back uh, in the special holder, uh, shoulder harness. Now, now, even as he did that, he told them, says, now, when you do that, you've got to just have dead weight. You've got to be there. If you feel something happening, you can't change. You can't, you got to trust me that I'm going to make all the adjustments. If you make adjustments, you're going to throw mine off. Even that's a statement of faith. What does it mean? It means putting ourselves on Christ's back. And it's like, not, I'm going to help you. You know, we'll do this together. It's like, no, I'm on your back. And I've got to totally trust Jesus to do everything. Now, here's what we have to realize. Here's the question just even to close. There may be some that you have come to church and, you know, you're there and you're at times, you know, you're, you're shouting, you're singing the songs, you're, Jesus, we believe. 
Even this morning, I talked to somebody after the first service, and he said, yeah, I remember years ago, it was Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I heard a message, and that's where I realized that I was on the sidelines and shouting, but I didn't have true faith. And true faith wasn't me doing, it wasn't me trying, it was me admitting my need and asking God to forgive me. True faith is not only standing on the sidelines, it's getting on Jesus' back and saying, God, I need you to carry me. And the question is, I asked earlier, is it possible to have belief without faith? And I think it is. And there may be some here that if you're honest, you say, that's me. And whether you're here in person or you're here online, you look at that and you say, that's me. I believe I've said the right things. I've been at church, and, but I've never truly trusted Christ. I've never truly come to him and said, God, I need you to forgive me. I need you to do it all. I give you the right to be Lord and King of my life. God, I surrender. I, I, I want to get on my back. I don't not only want to sit on the sidelines and shout, I want to let you carry me. And there may be some here today that today's the morning that you, God's calling you to say, okay, are you going to surrender? Are you going to get off the sidelines and are you going to trust Christ? Are you going to truly have faith? And it may be something as simple as just praying, God, I agree with you. I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me. God, it's not what I do. It's not me trying to be good enough to somehow figure this out and you know, fix myself up so that I'm more acceptable. All I do is I bring my need. Give me the faith. Give me grace. Forgive me based purely on what you have done. My friends, if you ask that, if you surrender that, that today may be the day that you go from standing on the sidelines to actually showing the faith to get on his back, truly trusting in Christ. By grace, you're saved through faith. I hope that that faith is real for you today. For those of us who have done that, we realize that it's this constant thing. What is it? And it's not only okay, by faith, it's I'm saved by faith. And, and even that very faith is a gift of God. And it's believing that I've not only been saved, it's believing that I am who God says I am, that I'm his masterpiece, that, that, that he's created me to do great good works, not defined by who I am or what I've done, but defined purely by my need by acknowledgement of that need and the grace that God gives me. I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to end up the message. But I just want to encourage you, you know, if God's leading you, I, I, you know, I'm going to be, I know we're going to have a congregational meeting. Uh, I'll be out in the lobby if you want to talk afterwards today or if you want to give me a call this week. If God's really even touching your heart, if you say, okay, today, I need, I need that. I need to get beyond just belief, and, and I want to have true faith. I want to have that true relationship. You can pray that where you're at in your chair, at home. Um, but please even talk to me afterwards. Call me this week. I'd love to explore with you even more what that means.